to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Luke, chapter 7. As we continue through the Bible. Now, Jesus has just in chapter 6 spoken to the people many of the truths that he shared in the Sermon on the Mount. When we were going through, we noted that this is not the Sermon on the Mount, the subject is similar. The statements are similar. Jesus, I'm certain, said these same things on many occasions. On this particular occasion, he was in the plains, as we are told. But having finished these vital lessons concerning the kingdom of God and those that will have a part in the kingdom of God, We read that he ended all of his sayings in the audience of the people, and he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. There are several mentions of centurions in the Scripture. They were Roman officers who were equal in rank to a master sergeant. They were over 100 men. And they were select and chosen special men. And in the scriptures, every mention of a centurion is in a positive light. They seem to be well chosen and well qualified and always mentioned in a very positive light. This particular centurion is, of course, mentioned in a positive light. You remember in the book of Acts, it was a centurion in Caesarea to where Peter came and shared the gospel, and the Holy Spirit first came upon the Gentile believers in the house of Cornelius, who was a centurion, a Roman centurion. So this particular centurion, living in Capernaum, servant who was dear unto him, ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal the servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him, saying that he was worthy for whom 
he should do this, for he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So the centurion sent these men. They were elders of the Jews. And it is quite possible that one of the men who had come to Jesus, one of the elders, could possibly be Jairus. For Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And so as they come to Jesus, they say, this man is worthy. He loves our nation, and he has built our synagogue. So uh, he is... uh, An unusual uh, man, he no doubt has many spiritual characteristics, as of course the story unfolds, we will discover them. So Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, For I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Now they said of him, he is a worthy man. He is saying, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. He is using a different word in the Greek. He is saying, I'm not really capable of entertaining you. And It is interesting, of course, a Jew was not to enter into the house of the Gentiles. I'm certain that Jesus would have entered his house had he not sent these second messengers. But he probably realized that it would have created just further controversy between Jesus and the Jews And so he he just says, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come to you. Now here he uses the same word that they used when they said he is a worthy man. He says, I didn't feel that I was worthy to come to you. So you have their opinion of him. You have his opinion of of himself. They said he's a worthy man. He said, I I didn't feel that I was worthy to come unto you. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. In other words, he is saying, I know what authority is about. I also am under authority, recognizing that Jesus was under the authority of the Father. I know authority. I know what authority is about. I also am under authority, but I have under me men. Now, here is a necessary prerequisite for anyone who is to exercise authority in a proper manner. There are some people who, when given authority, don't know how to use it. They become tyrants. They become autocrats. The man who can truly rule is the man who understands that he is ruled. That I am under a set of laws. I'm under a set of rules. 
And I have authority, but I am under authority. I'm not the final authority. And this man understanding the chain of command, being a military man, he knows what authority is about. And recognizing the authority of Jesus, he said, I, I understand your authority, the authority that Jesus had in spiritual things and also in physical things. Lord, I know that you have the authority to just speak the word and my servant will be healed. You don't have to come to my house. I know your authority. I recognize your authority. I, I also am under authority. I recognize what it's all about. I can say to one, go, and he goes, and I can say to another, comes, and he comes, and I know that all you have to do is just say it. Just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned him about and said to the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Jesus remarks in a very positive way concerning this man's comprehension, concerning his faith. I haven't found faith like this, not in Israel. So it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and many people, disciples plus a multitude of people. And now when he came near to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and many people of the city were with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. Now here we have a very graphic picture. There are two crowds, two multitudes, one are coming into the gate of the city. They're a happy crowd. Smiles on their faces. They are a amazed crowd. They're amazed at the things that Jesus is doing. They've been watching the miracles. They're an expectant crowd because they know that wherever Jesus goes, things happen. And there is sort of a clashing contrast here because as they are going into the gate of the city, there's another crowd coming out of the city led by the mourners who are wailing. And we see in this crowd coming out of the city this reed kind of a basket in which there is a body that is being carried to the burial place which is just outside of the little village of Nain, still there to the present day. You'll find this uh, uh, place filled with tombstones, just a uh, sarcophagus right outside of the little village of Nain. And they're carrying this body to place it in one of these limestone sarcophaguses, or sarcophagi, I guess you'd call it, 
for you English majors. <laughs> Octopi. <laughs> you don't say octopuses. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Jesus' attention was drawn to the little woman who was sobbing. This was her only son, and she was a widow. That means she's going to be alone without any support, without anyone. Husband dead, and now her only son is dead. And so Jesus said to her, weep not. He had compassion on her. That word compassion is a great word. It it speaks of the deepest kind of sympathetic emotions that one can experience. Understanding emotions of of tenderness and caring. And he came and he touched the bear. Now, that was, of course, uh, a no-no as far as the religious Jews were concerned. To touch a dead body or anything that had touched a dead body would constitute a ceremonial uncleanness. But Jesus touched the beer, and he, they that were carrying him stood still, and he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Now this is something interesting to me. We have three occasions in the scripture where Jesus raised the dead. And in every case, he spoke to the dead as though they were alive. You know, you don't talk to corpses. But Jesus did. And in every case, he he spoke to them as, as though they were alive. To this corpse, he said, young man. I say unto you, arise. To the daughter of Jairus, he said, little lamb, arise. To Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come on out of there. Interesting, isn't it? That he spoke to the dead as though they were alive. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. What a way to break up a funeral procession. (laughs) Again, the the contrasting crowds. Those that are coming in with Jesus, the many people, the multitude, they, they clash or they meet at the gate of the city. The one crowd coming out filled with sorrow and wailing. The other coming in filled with joy and anticipation. But as the result of the encounter with Jesus, the whole crowd ended up rejoicing and glorifying God. And there was a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us and that God has visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all of Judea and throughout all the region round about. It scattered. The rumor went as far south as Judea. Everybody began to hear about the things that Jesus was doing. And so the disciples of John 
came to John, who at that time was in prison, and they told him of the things that Jesus was doing. And John called unto him two of his disciples, and he sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And when the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Are you the one that should come, or shall we look for another? Now, John had earlier said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. There's one that is coming after me. He's mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when John saw Jesus, John said, This is he of whom I spake, who was coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose shoe latches I'm not worthy to untie. And he turned to his disciples and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, John has been spending some time in Herod's prison, which must have been extremely difficult for John because John was an outdoorsman. He was a man of the, you know, the, uh, of the desert, rugged, outdoor individualist. And to be cooped up in a little prison, no doubt, was difficult. But John's concept of the Messiah was the same as the Jews' concept of the Messiah. He thought that the Messiah was going to lead them in military victories to overthrow the Roman government and to, by force, establish the kingdom of God, overthrowing the governments of man. And so when Jesus began to manifest his power, but did not announce any kind of political platform. He wasn't rallying an army. He wasn't speaking of rebellion. John, probably a little tired of sitting in prison, sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Or shall we look for another? In other words, he's more or less saying, hey, let's get the show on the road. I'm tired of sitting in jail. You know, let's, let's go. And so Jesus, interestingly enough, did not give to the disciples of John a direct answer. But in the same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. And then Jesus answering said unto them, he, he just for an hour or so ministered to the people that were coming, healing those that were sick, opening the blind eyes, and, and, and just ministering. And after an hour or so of ministering, then he answered or responded to the disciples of John, and he said unto them, Go your way and tell John the things that you have seen and the things that you've heard. 
how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me. Now, when Jesus began his public ministry, after the baptism by John and after the temptation in the wilderness, you remember that he came to the synagogue in Capernaum. I mean, in synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and they handed to him the scriptures. And Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah and he opened it to where it said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, basically, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's fulfilling the prophecy concerning the Messiah as was written by Isaiah. So just go back and tell John the things that you've seen, the things that you've heard. John knows the scriptures. He'll understand that I am indeed the Messiah. So when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. And he said, what went you out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. Now, John, you remember, was baptizing down at the Jordan River, and the Jordan River was uh, filled with reeds on the banks of the river, all of these reeds that were blowing in the wind. Jesus said, is that why you went down to the wilderness? You know, just to see these reeds by the Jordan River that are blowing in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? <laughs> Behold, they which are gorgeously appareled live and live delicately are king's courts. You know, uh, John, you remember, wore uh, a, a coat of uh, skins, you know, a leather coat, rugged. Men who wear the silks, <laughs> they're in the king's courts. They're not in the king's prisons. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Jesus then quoted from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where Malachi prophesied of the forerunner of Jesus Christ, or of the Messiah. And he is saying of John that he is the one that Malachi was speaking of. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And of course, on through the third chapter and on into the fourth chapter of Malachi, the prophecies of the forerunner of the Messiah. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women... There is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. 
quite a uh, acknowledgement by Jesus. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Our position in Christ is a position that is greater than any of the prophets of the Old Testament had the privilege of experiencing. This glorious relationship that we have, Christ in you, Christ dwelling in you, our privileges, our position in Christ exceeds the relationship that the people could have to God in the Old Testament. You see, they were always separated by a veil from God. But in Christ, we have boldness to come unto the Father, into the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. What a glorious privilege is ours as children of God and this relationship we have now through Jesus Christ who has removed the veil so that we have access to the throne of grace where we might find mercy in our time of need. And so he who is least in the kingdom of heaven actually enjoys a greater position than Elijah, Elisha, or the greatest of the prophets, even John the Baptist. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. They, when Jesus spoke so positively of John, they, they all sort of consented, yes, because they had all gone out and been baptized by John and recognized that the Holy Spirit was upon John and his was a legitimate ministry of God. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, not being baptized by John. You remember that uh, when they asked Jesus a question that he did not want to answer, he said to the Pharisees, I will ask you a question, and if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. John's baptism, was it of God or was it of man? And they got in a huddle and they said, hey, we can't answer that question. Because if we say it was of man, then the people will all get angry at us because they believe John was a prophet. If we say it was of God, then he's going to say, well, then why weren't you baptized? And so uh, they knew that he had them. So they said, we can't answer your questions. You said, well, I won't answer yours. But uh, this baptism of John, you see, even here there was a controversy concerning it. When Jesus talks about John and affirms John, the people all say, yeah, you know. But the Pharisees and all, they, they sort of hang back uh, because they rejected the wisdom and the counsel of God they were not baptized by him. And so the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are likened to children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced. 
We've mourned to you and you have not wept. Jesus, no doubt, had observed the children in the marketplace as they are playing their various games. Let's pretend. And let's pretend it's a wedding. We play the pipes, but, you know, you didn't want to dance, so let's play funeral. And uh, we'll wail and, and, and uh, you know, just howl. And, but, you, you know, you didn't want to play funeral. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. He was quite an ascetic. He ate uh, locusts and wild honey. And you said he has a devil. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, he's a gluttonous man. He's a wine-bibber. He's a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. As we said this morning, Jesus loved to eat with people. He loved to uh, be at the party, to enter into the enjoyment and uh, the um, intimacy of, of dining with people. And already he's been in trouble here in Luke's gospel for going to the big party that Matthew through when Matthew quit and resigned from his tax collector job to become a disciple, invited all of his tax collector friends uh, to his house, and Jesus went to eat. Remember how they found fault with him because he was eating with the sinners and with the tax collectors? One of the Pharisees desired that Jesus would eat with him. And as we said, he's never one to turn down an invitation for dinner. <laughs> going so far as to invite himself to dinner, even as he has invited himself to eat with you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto, I will come in unto him and I will sup with him or I'll have supper, I'll, I'll eat with him. The Lord loves that intimacy of just eating together. There, there's something special about just eating together, and especially in that culture. Because in that culture, it was tantamount to becoming one with each other. And so the Pharisee desired that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Actually, he laid down, as was the custom, reclining, on the left elbow, uh, they didn't have tables and chairs. Uh, the, the food was spread out there on a the table on the floor. And uh, you see pictures of the Last Supper in the, in the beautiful china and uh, <laughs> silverware and all. It wasn't like that. Uh, it was uh, far different. And uh, you would lie down and uh, you could get more people around the food uh, by lying in a a prone position. And so as Jesus was there, behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner. Uh, in the Greek language, it uh, indicates that she was a prostitute. Uh, 
And when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And she stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, uh, there is another case in the Gospel of John where Jesus had gone to dinner and how that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, uh, took this precious ointment and poured it on the feet of Jesus and the whole house was filled with the fragrance and how that um, she, she also, with her tears, washed his feet and wiped them with her hair. And uh, people sometimes say, you know, uh, is it the same? No, it isn't. It isn't the same feast. This happened early on in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, the other feast was just six days before he was crucified. It was at the end of the ministry of Jesus, uh, the account in John. In fact, it tells us it was six days before the Passover, and he was crucified on the Passover. So they are different occasions, but similar kind of uh, things as far as the uh, love and tenderness towards Jesus that was expressed by the women. Now, I believe that this woman was already saved. Matthew's gospel has this, in Matthew's gospel, this particular event came right after Jesus had been speaking to the multitudes where he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Perhaps she was in the crowd that heard Jesus say that, and hearing Jesus say that, came to him and received forgiveness. It would, it would seem from the story that she knew the Lord already. And it was probably when she heard that Jesus was at the house of Simon the Pharisee, she came with others to the feast, not to eat of the feast, but just to uh, be around there. Uh, the houses were all had open courtyards in the middle, and the house was built around an open courtyard. The courtyard was the place for the social activities. And when they would have a feast with a honored guest, they would leave the front door open and people were free to come and go to hear the conversation and, and to see what was, uh, and to hear the words really of, of the uh, honored guest who uh, usually was a rabbi and they would come to hear the words of wisdom. When Kay and I were in New Guinea, 
uh, we were invited out to a village and the chieftain had prepared a feast for us. It was quite an experience. Uh, they uh, dig a hole in the ground and they put rocks in it and they build a fire and get the rocks very hot. And then they lay these uh, banana uh, leaves over the hot rocks and then they put the food on the banana leaves and then they put uh, more banana leaves and more food, more banana leaves and more food and they just sort of fill up the hole with food and they have a bamboo that uh, goes down on into the bottom to the rocks and then when they get the, the hole filled with food, they cover it with dirt. They put the banana leaves on then they cover that with dirt. And then every once in a while, they'll pour water uh, down uh, the bamboo shoot, and it, and it gives you the steamed uh, vegetables and food. And, and some of it was edible, and uh, <laughs> some of it was questionable. Some of it was actually quite good. And uh, so we were there, and it, you know, it was quite an experience because... Uh, the village chieftain and all of the village leaders were there with us at the dinner. But all around the fence, there were all these people. The whole village was congregated at the fence. They were outside. And, and the little boys, you know, all peeking in and watching us eat. And whenever we would have something that we sort of questioned, uh, uh, I would take it over to the fence and just sort of slip it to the little boys who were quite anxious to eat it. Uh, but uh, it was something like that where, where you have these kind of public feasts and, and the public doesn't eat of the feast, but they all gather out of sort of curiosity. There's a special guest and, and ceremonies and all. And uh, so, it, so it was with uh, this woman joined the crowd who came in. And she stood behind Jesus. Now, she began to weep, her tears falling on his feet. Twice we read of Jesus having his feet washed with tears. There's also another possibility here. Not just the tears that were shed at that moment, tears probably of, of joy, emotion, because of the transformation that Jesus had brought into her life. She couldn't quite fully comprehend the changes that had been wrought since she encountered Jesus. How dramatic the change has been in thinking of his love and his tenderness, his compassion towards her, knowing what she was. But in those days, tears were considered a, a sort of valuable keepsake. And whenever a person would cry, they had little tear bottles. And they would hold their these tear bottles up to their eyes and they would catch the tears. And so every woman had her little 
tear bottle filled with her tears, which were sort of an emotional thing because it was a reminder of the sorrows and of the pain that they had experienced in life and then mingled with the tears of joy. You can buy today those tear bottles uh, in Israel. They're probably, they tell you, well, you know, these are part of the archaeological finds, but they probably are made in one of the Arab factories over there. But uh, they look authentic and they look old. And uh, they are shaped after the uh, tear bottles that they did have. And, and so uh, I have one of these little tear bottles. I don't have any tears in it, but uh, <laughs> I have one of these little tear bottles. And they are interesting. But they were, they were prized very highly because the emotions of life were all bound up in this little bottle. And, and people prized these quite highly. And it is quite possible that she took her tear bottle and poured it on the feet of Jesus. He is the end of a lot of tears, the tears of grief and sorrow that come into our lives as the result of sin, the pain that sin so often brings. And if it indeed was her tear bottle and that she put with the tears that she was shedding, a rather poignant kind of a experience of just acknowledging the days of tears are over. My life's been transformed. My life's been changed. And so she stood at his feet behind him because he was reclining. His feet were behind him. And she stood there at his feet as he was facing across the table at the guest of honor, or at the host, rather. He was the guest of honor, supposedly but not much honor was given to him by the host. And she began to wash his feet with tears so that with tears could be the tears that she was shedding at the moment plus the tear bottle. And she did wipe them with the hairs of her head. And then she kissed his feet. In the Greek, the word kissed there is well, to put it in a sort of modern English, she smothered his feet with kisses. In other words, she just was kissing. As Jesus later said, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Uh, she was smothering his feet with kisses. And she anointed them with this perfume from her alabaster box. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spoke within himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. They believed that defilement could be transferred by touching. If you would touch a person who was a sinner, you would be defiled. If you would touch a woman, you could be defiled. Touching a Gentile was defiling. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus was heading towards the house of a Gentile when the Gentile centurion said, no, don't trouble yourself. 
We remember how that Peter, when he went to the house of another centurion, Cornelius, in Caesarea, how that he was reluctant and hesitant to go into the house. Had he not had a vision in which the Lord told him, don't call that unclean which I have cleansed. Now you go. Don't ask any questions. Just do what's bidden you. I'm sure he took a big swallow when he walked into the house of a Gentile. I mean, this was a no-no. He had never been in the house of a Gentile before in all of his life. This is breaking tradition. This is difficult. This is hard. And I'm sure there was just a lot of reluctance in, in Peter as he entered into the house of Cornelius, the house of a Gentile. Mark Martin, who pastors one of the Calvaries in Phoenix, was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And he was listening to our radio broadcast in Phoenix, became quite interested in the teaching of the Word. And as we were going through Romans, he discovered the grace of God and a new relationship to God, not by the law, but by grace. And so he left his pastorate in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he started a church he called Calvary Fellowship. And so he called me after a time, and he told me about his starting an independent church there, and he was still enjoying the radio broadcast and wanted to meet me and wanted to seek affiliation with Calvary Chapel. He said, actually, you're the one that, you know, has taught me and brought me out of the bondage that I was in. And, and um, I, I took the name Calvary. I was afraid to call it Calvary Chapel because uh, I didn't have permission, but I called it Calvary Fellowship. And uh, so I said, well, it's interesting, Mark. I'm having a meeting uh, over in uh, Cottonwood next week with the pastors from Arizona. Why don't you come on up to this conference and we'll have a chance to sit down and talk to you about becoming affiliated with Calvary Chapel. So Mark came up to the conference. I met him. And uh, those Arizona fellows really know how to eat. And uh, they always have a, a great barbecue, steak barbecue. I mean, it's just really great. And uh, so uh, we sat down at the table and started to eat. And so I was sharing with Mark how that there was another Seventh-day Adventist pastor up in Fresno who left the ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and also wanted affiliation with Calvary Chapel. And uh, how that, uh, he was a great guy, and we met him on several occasions, but I said, you know, he's still hung up uh, with the law. I mean, uh, he's still a vegetarian, and, you know, he's a, he, he still doesn't eat meat, and, and he's still got these hang-ups. And so he couldn't really make a real transition uh, 
you know, into the Calvary Chapel because of his hang-ups. About that time, they put the stakes down in front of us, and <laughs> we dug in, and I didn't know that, but in all of his life, he had never eaten meat. But he downed the steak. <laughs> I'm certain it was hard to swallow. I mean, you know, all of the tradition and all. But he went home and he said to his wife, Honey, we are now really free. <laughs> but this business of touching and being defiled by touching. And the Pharisees were very, very um, severe in this. As we mentioned this morning, they would wrap their robes tightly around them so that their robes would not swish out and accidentally touch a woman or a Gentile or a uh, sinful person. And so the Pharisee, when he saw this woman who had a reputation and he no doubt knew her, well, he did because uh, he, he said, you know, she's a sinful woman. He knew her. And so when he saw this woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiping them with her hair and then smothering them with kisses, he thought to himself, yeah, he can't be a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. He would know what a sinner she is. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. And Jesus then gave him a little parable of a creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence and the other owed him 50 pence. Translated into today would be something like $50,000 and $5,000. And neither one was able to pay their debt. So he forgave both of them. Now, which one, Jesus said, loved him the most? And Simon said, well, I guess the one that he forgave the most. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. And then Jesus went on to compare the hospitality that he had given to Jesus with the woman's graciousness towards him. He was sort of a very crude reception of Jesus. You see, when you were invited to dinner in that Eastern culture, as you arrived at the house, the first thing is that there would be a servant at the door with a basin of water to wash your feet. You would leave your sandals at the door and they would wash your feet and you would enter in. The host would then kiss you in greeting. And then he would take a bit of perfume, the attar of rose, and oil, and put it on your forehead to just give a fragrance in the room, bespeaking the, the fragrance of the conversation and all, and 
the, the time that was shared together that it might be a beautiful, fragrant experience. He said, Simon, you didn't do any of these courtesies for me. You had no water to pour on my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss, nor did you anoint my head. You failed in the common courtesies offered to a guest. But this woman, she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And she hasn't stopped kissing my feet from the time I came in. And she's anointed my feet with the perfume. And he said, I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, that's where it would appear that Jesus is talking about a past action. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and forgiveness. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 7 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the Lord be with you, give you a beautiful week, and may His words sustain you as you walk with Him in fellowship. May God really begin a powerful work in your life. May the Spirit of the Lord just really rest heavy upon you. So God bless you and give you a rich week in fellowship with Him. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Have you ever had a friend who's not a believer and they ask you a question about the Bible and you're thrilled? Finally, they want to know about God, but then you go blank because you can't remember the scripture that would answer their very question? You're not alone. It happens to me all the time, and I think, if only I had a quick scripture reference that would help me right then and there, that would be perfect. Well, guess what I found? Pastor Chuck's Old and New Testament study guides are available to download as ebooks instantly to your phone or mobile device. Now, whenever you need to find the meaning to a scripture reference quickly, you can. 
Pastor Chuck has written great little Bible commentaries to help anyone come to a better understanding of God's Word. To find out more and to read a book preview, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link to download the Old and New Testament study guides by Chuck Smith. Or if you would like to order these books in print, call The Word for Today at 800-272-9673.